Hello, and welcome back to the Backstage of History. My name is Melissa, and on this podcast, I discuss women intellectuals, thinkers, artists, scholars, writers, and more who have shaped the world as we know it today, yet lack the recognition that they deserve. What you just heard was It's a Man's Man's World by James Brown, who released the song in the 1960s to bring light to the need for women in male-dominated spaces. The song was actually released right after the passing of our notable thinker of today's podcast, Zora Neale Hurston. Hurston was an extremely important anthropologist, playwright, author, and intellectual who managed to capture and record the African-American experience in the early 1900s. In addition to this, Hurston was able to give exposure to Black women specifically and played an integral role in including Black women within feminist discourse, which had been, and still is, dominated by white women. I will begin by discussing Hurston's background, family, and education as her upbringing played a huge role in the way she pursued her career in writing. Then I will discuss some of Hirsten's most notable literary works and how she contributed to the feminist movement. Then finally, I will offer my insights on Hirsten and some criticisms that I do have of her writing. But first, on to her biography. Zora Neale Hurston was born in Nottaselga, Alabama on January 7, 1891, to John and Lucy Hurston. Hurston was one of eight children that John and Lucy had. Her father, John Hurston, was a carpenter and Baptist preacher, and her mother, Lucy Hurston, was a former schoolteacher. Hurston described her birthplace as, quote, an outlying district of landless Negroes and whites not too much better off, end quote. After Hurston was born, her father decided to move the entire family to Eatonville, Florida, as their current town, Natasalga, did not have many opportunities and resources for a growing African-American family. At the time of their move, Eatonville was a predominantly all-Black town, which made Hurston's exposure to white people very minimal. In fact, she was quite sheltered from racism for the majority of her childhood and was surrounded by vast amounts of Black excellence, artistry, and representation. It wasn't until her mother passed away in 1904, when Hurston was just 13 years old, that she was first faced with the challenges of being a Black woman in America. Hurston's mother was her biggest supporter. She placed a huge emphasis on education and constantly encouraged Hurston to, quote, reach for the sun, end quote. After her mother's passing, her father shortly remarried to a young woman that Hirsten did not get along with. In fact, Hirsten got into a physical fight with her stepmother, which placed a huge strain on the already poor relationship that Hirsten had with her father, 
and eventually got Hirsten exiled from her family. As a result, she was forced to be independent and support herself without the aid of her family. Shortly after her mother's death, she attended Florida Baptist Academy in Jacksonville, Florida, in which Kirsten said the city, quote, made me know that I was a little colored girl, end quote. In addition to facing racism and discrimination at her school, she was forced to work a bunch of menial jobs in order to support her and her siblings, as her father was not adequately providing for the family. This forced Kirsten to postpone her education. Kirsten eventually attended Morgan Academy High School in Baltimore in 1917 when she was 26 years old in an attempt to complete her high school requirements. She excelled in English and history and was well-liked by all of her teachers. The summer after completing her high school credits, Kirsten's father passed away in Memphis after a train collided with his car. Due to the poor relationship her and her father had, Kirsten decided to not attend the funeral. After high school, Kirsten attended Howard University. Howard University is widely acclaimed to be the most prestigious historically black university in the United States. In addition, it is known for being committed to social change and the students who attended the school when Kirsten attended often participated in protests against discriminatory legislation against African-Americans, such as Jim Crow laws. Kirsten enjoyed her university experience, however, she struggled to meet tuition payments and was forced to adopt an unhealthy balance between work and school. With that said, she managed to receive an associate's degree from Howard University in 1920. Shortly after, in 1925, she began her studies in anthropology at Bernard College, an elite women's college with Franz Boas. Boas was known to be the, quote, father of American anthropology, end quote. He opposed the idea that differences between races can be explained through science. Kirsten and Boaz worked hand-in-hand to find empirical evidence that different races do not differ biologically. Her anthropological studies with Boaz was, quote, the first of its kind in the United States, end quote. Kirsten became Bernard College's only African-American student. Kirsten even described herself as Bernard's sacred black cow. After graduating from Bernard and publishing many short stories, articles, and novels surrounding Black Southern folklore, she began her studies for a PhD in anthropology at Columbia University in 1935 on a fellowship given to her by the Rosenwald Foundation. It was here that Kirsten made a tremendous impact on keeping African-American history alive through her literary masterpieces. Unfortunately, Kirsten's health took a turn for the worse in the late 1950s when she suffered from a stroke in 1959 and was forced to enter St. Lucie County Welfare Home, where she eventually died from hypertensive heart disease on January 28, 1960. This helpful background of Kirsten's life will be extremely useful in understanding her literary pieces. This brings me to my next point of discussion on Kirsten's most notable literary works. So uninspired And when I knew I had to face another day Lord, it made me feel so tired Before the day I met you 
Pearson is widely respected for her contributions she made in preserving Black history through her literature. She portrayed both the struggles of African Americans alongside African American culture in the early 1900s through her novels, short stories, poems, and plays. Furthermore, she laid the groundwork for future African American women writers, such as Alice Walker, Maya Angelou, and Toni Morrison. Kirsten wrote a plethora of literary pieces, but her most notable works are Their Eyes Are Watching God, Seraph on the Swanee, Mules and Men, and Mule Bone. Their Eyes Were Watching God was published in 1937 and is known to be Kirsten's most famous work. It is a feminist novel based in the 1930s about the Black female protagonist, Janie Crawford, and her quest to self-discovery. Crawford experiences three marriages, each one allowing her to learn more about herself and forcing her to deal with misogyny and domestic violence. Her third marriage, with the character known as Tea Cake, a younger man who no one approves of, turns into a loving relationship in which she is able to attain the self-discovery she seeks. Although Tea Cake is the love of Janie's life, the novel still brings in themes of gambling and domestic abuse within their marriage. Kirsten leaves it up to the reader to decide if these troubling developments should impact the feminist message of her work. Their Eyes Are Watching God is commonly taught in high school, college, and university, as it is a staple in modern classic literature and feminist thought. This is the second novel Kirsten ever wrote, and it is what, quote, put her on the map, end quote, in the 1930s Black literature. Another notable feminist work by Kirsten is Seraph on the Swanee, which was her final novel written in 1948. In contrast with Their Eyes Are Watching God, this novel is focused primarily on the lives of white Southerners, and the protagonist, Arve Meserve, displays the opposite of Crawford's tenacity and independence. Meserve is completely submissive to her husband, Jim, and as a result, she fails to find her sense of self. Instead, Meserve believes that her existence is merely meant to serve her children and her husband. An interesting component of the novel that is commonly debated is Hirsten's portrayal of Jim, Meserve's husband, as fluent in African-American vernacular, despite being white. Kirsten does this in order to portray what was commonly understood as language privy to Black folk as something more broad, and instead, something that has stronger geographical roots in the South. Critics of Kirsten say that this is a, quote, betrayal to Black folk life, end quote. However, others claim that it actually speaks to Kirsten's anthropological understanding of race in relation to the entire country. Overall, Seraph on the Swanee is another feminist novel by Kirsten that challenges readers to view identity and feminism from multiple points of view. Kirsten's writing often captured her anthropological work on race. Her nonfiction book, Mules and Men, written in 1935, is just one excellent example of this. Mules and Men entails a collection of first-person accounts on Black culture and voodoo practices that she observed in Eatonville and Polk County. Kirsten returned to her hometown of Eatonville, Florida, in order to record the, quote, oral histories, sermons, and songs, end quote, that heavily influenced her childhood. She writes in the introduction, quote, Florida is a place that draws people, white people from all over the world and Negroes from every Southern state, surely and some from the North and West, end quote. 
Kirsten managed to keep Black culture and traditions alive through the documentation of her experiences alongside others. Furthermore, it is through her writings that she managed to present Black culture as an important and beautiful component of American culture as a whole. Kirsten was also a playwright, one of her most famous plays being Mulebone, which was made in collaboration with Langston Hughes, another literary star of the Harlem Renaissance. This play is a folk comedy based in Eatonville, Florida, Kirsten's hometown. She claims that it was derived from her own anthropological research combined with her upbringing in Eatonville. The play is about two main characters, Jim and Dave. Jim and Dave are part of a two-man song and dance team and are the best of friends until they both grow jealous over one woman, Daisy. As a result, Jim strikes Dave with a mule bone, hence the name of the play, and then the play progresses into a debate determining Jim's fate after committing such a crime. There are two groups of people advocating for each side of the play. One, the Baptists, who wish to banish Jim, and two, the Methodists, who wish to pardon him. Despite being very satirical, the play depicts Jim and Dave in a negative light as they develop such a heated feud over Daisy, the woman who is being presented as an object that they both want to keep for themselves. The play not only depicts Black culture in Florida, but also the way Black women were treated at the time. Despite the success of the play, Kirsten and Hughes did not reach an amicable end to their work. In fact, their experience working together has been called, quote, the most notorious literary quarrel in African-American cultural history, end quote. So now that we have a better understanding of Kirsten's most notable works, I will now be discussing how she directly contributed to the feminist movement. Kirsten played a significant role in the Harlem Renaissance, a movement that developed in the Harlem neighborhood of New York City beginning right after World War I. It was a revolution for Black life, artistry, and identity. The Harlem Renaissance was sparked by the mass migration of Black individuals to northern Manhattan despite mass protestation from white folk. As a result, Harlem was home to over 300,000 African Americans. It was a cultural revolution that produced a deeper appreciation for Black art. There was an immediate rise in jazz and blues clubs. Some notable artists that emerged during this time were Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, and Mammy Smith. In addition, the Harlem Renaissance emphasized the rise in excellent literary work by and about African Americans. Some notable writers were Langston Hughes, County Cullen, and of course, Zora Neale Hurston. The art produced during the Harlem Renaissance was done in a way to help African Americans gain political and civil rights during the Jim Crow era. After being oppressed for generations because of slavery, the Harlem Renaissance was an astounding movement for African Americans to finally reclaim their culture and their own autonomy. Kirsten played a critical role in showcasing and preserving African American culture through her literary pieces. 
She did not merely present the racial inequalities and discrimination experienced by African-Americans at the time, but instead she managed to showcase black culture and the relationships African-Americans had with each other outside of this racial divide. Kirsten believed that black art needed to showcase both the struggles of African-Americans, but also their artistic excellence and successes. So what does this all mean for the feminist movement? By capturing black history and excellence through her literary pieces, Kirsten managed to give a voice to African-American women by placing them at the forefront of her work in a positive light. African-American women were rarely represented in art, and if they did gain some sort of recognition, it was usually very insignificant and was riddled with misogynistic and racist stereotypes. Kirsten was able to transform this narrative through her work. She portrayed men as the wrongdoers and Black women as the autonomous beings that were capable of thought, emotion, perseverance, and intellect. Although the representation of Black women within art and media is still an issue that has yet been resolved, Kirsten was a pioneer in ensuring that Black women were given the recognition they deserved and how critical of a role they played in shaping Black culture. In addition, Kirsten fought against the elitist expectations of African-American art that was set up by Webb Dubois. Dubois believed that Black art had to be done in a way that generated a call to action against the racial discrimination of African-Americans. Kirsten believed that Black art should not be limited in such a way, as this can stifle creative freedom and hinder the advancement and human scaffolding of Black culture. Instead, Kirsten believed that African-Americans should not limit their artistic expression and advocated for creative freedom within art and literature. Translating this into her contribution to the feminist movement, she was one of the first Black women to encourage other Black women to live their lives freely and vicariously without feeling subjected to conforming to the patriarchy while also not forcing women to actively fight against it. She believed that determining the way women should or should not act was in and of itself anti-feminist. At the time, African-Americans had just been legally liberated from enslavement, and Kirsten suggested that African-Americans should not perpetuate a servitude to ideologies that may strengthen this class divide. Furthermore, Kirsten was one of the first feminist thinkers to demonstrate the intersectionality of feminism by presenting the issues commonly faced by women from multiple perspectives. At the time, the understanding of women's rights, liberation, and autonomy was paired with the image of white women. Once again, Kirsten challenged this commonly held belief by representing black women in her works and presenting the differences between being a black woman in America versus a white woman. So now that we have a more holistic understanding of Kirsten's background, her notable works, and her contribution to the feminist movement, I will now offer my own thoughts on Hirston. opinion, I believe that Zora Neale Hurston was an extremely crucial player in preserving and upkeeping Black history and culture. 
Not only did she maintain Black culture through her pieces, but she also managed to change the narrative of African-American women. Without Hirsten, I believe that the modern conception and understanding of intersectionality would not have progressed as far as it has today. With that said, I am somewhat critical of her appraisal of domestic abuse within some of her more notable pieces. For example, in Their Eyes Were Watching God, there is a point in the novel where Tea Cake is upset with his neighbor, Miss Turner. Turner is constantly telling Crawford, Tea Cake's wife, that because of her lighter complexion, she should marry someone who is not as dark as Tea Cake, such as her son. After overhearing what Turner said to Crawford, Tea Cake decides to beat Crawford that night to, quote, show them Turner's who is boss. I sat in the kitchen one day and heard that woman tell my wife I'm too black for her, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, I didn't want to whip her last night, but old Miss Turner done sent for her brother to come bait Janie in and take her away from me, end quote. Here, Crawford is being used as a prop by Tea Cake to demonstrate his dominance to everyone in town and that he essentially owns Crawford, despite her being in a higher socioeconomic class. Unfortunately, Crawford's perspective is not touched upon at all. Kirsten fails to provide the reader with the way Crawford felt about the entire situation. This was somewhat troublesome to me, as this book is highly regarded as a feminist novel, yet does not take a clear stance on domestic abuse. After further reflection, I believe that this may be a bit of her anthropological work shining through. Perhaps Hirsten was merely depicting the typical relationship and power dynamic between men and women at the time. With that said, I believe that further clarification on the issue of domestic abuse by showcasing the point of view of Crawford would have been a more sufficient response. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope that I've taught you something new and that you can stop listening to this podcast with knowledge of one more female thinker who has shaped the world that we're currently living in. My name is Melissa, and this is The Backstage of History. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong And I grew strong And I learned